0: So, uh, we have been in the book of Jonah, and tonight we come to the very last chapter, chapter four. Uh, Just four little chapters in this book. How has everyone been enjoying the book of Jonah so far? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a short little book, but uh, what was the word? Do you say the word deep? It is a deep book. Um, It's a deep book not just because Jonah, you know, he sinks down to the ocean depths. You know, the famous part of Jonah is the part where he gets swallowed by the fish. But actually tonight, we are looking at chapter 4, which you know may not seem as though it's as important as the fish chapter. This is actually the most important chapter in the whole book. This is where the whole book really begins to come together. Um, just We'll start with the outline that I've been giving each week just uh, as a way to help navigate what is in this book. So we've been saying, this little outline by a man named Bruce Anstey, that in chapter 1, Jonah, who's a prophet, you see him as a paying man. He Runs away from God because God tells him to do something that he doesn't like. And Jonah actually pays his way onto a ship to run away from God. Disobedience always costs you something. So in chapter 1, he's a paying man. In chapter 2, he's a praying man. In chapter 3, he's a preaching man. He actually obeys God. He goes to the Ninevites to proclaim God's message. And then today, in chapter 4, you see Jonah as a pouting man a pouting man. Now why is Jonah pouting in chapter 4? Seems kind of like an anticlimactic way to end this book. Well, we're going to find out. So we're going to read this together. So uh, feel free to grab your copy of the passage. And you'll notice that it actually starts with the previous uh, chapter, the last verse of chapter 3. goes all the way to the end of the book. So here we go. When, Jonah saw their, when God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil way of living, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with and did not destroy them. This displeased Jonah terribly, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, this is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. This is what I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish. Because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threatened judgment. So now, Lord, kill me instead, because I would rather die than live. The Lord said, are you really so very angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made a shelter for himself there and sat down under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. The Lord God appointed a little plant and caused it to grow up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to rescue him from his misery. Now Jonah was very delighted about the little plant. So God sent a worm at dawn the next day, and it attacked the little plant so that it dried up. When the sun began to shine, God sent a hot east wind. So the sun beat down on Jonah's head, and he grew faint. So he despaired of life and said, I would rather die than live. God said to Jonah, Are you really so very angry about the little plant? And he said, I am as angry as I could possibly be. The Lord said, You were upset about this little plant, something for which you did not work, nor did you do anything to make it grow. It grew up overnight and died the next day. Should I not be more concerned about Nineveh, this enormous city? There are more than 120,000 people in it who do not know right from wrong, as well as many animals. So now, how do you like that? That's how the book ends. (laughs) Kind of a strange little ending. So uh, let's just notice some things here. You know, you guys will get the chance to study it more in small groups tonight. But let me just kind of set the table uh, and just help us notice a few things tonight. So first of all, let's do a little bit of framing. Let's just uh, frame what we see in this chapter uh, by way of noticing that this chapter contains a couple of contrasts. They're, they're kind of witty contrasts. They're very ironic contrasts. And uh, what we're going to see, actually, is if you, if you look at the flow of this chapter, those, those contrasts especially come through uh, in the fact that this is a dialogue. It's almost a little uh, argument between Jonah and God. And you can see uh, that each of them, God and Jonah, speak three times. So there's sort of three little exchanges uh, that they have. And as you look at those exchanges, you'll notice in the text that there are two main contrasts. Uh, number one, you can see that there's a contrast between Jonah's heart versus God's heart. And then you'll also notice that there's a contrast between Jonah's flight and God's pursuit. So uh, just that's kind of how we can frame it tonight. Let me just use that as a way to kind of notice some more things that uh, you'll find in this chapter. And along the way, by the way, uh, just there'll be a couple of, of maybe what you might call key ideas or maybe key themes, key messages that I think you can discern from this chapter. And we'll put those up on the screen. They'll be in big letters just so that way you can... Notice what they are. So let's just kind of meditate for a minute on, on the first contrast that you can see in the text. So there's a contrast here tonight between the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. And you actually get a sense of that just from the very first verse. So the very first verse says, This displeased Jonah terribly, and he became very angry. So now the first thing we have to do is we have to figure out, well, okay, you know, what is the, you know, what is the this in this verse. You know, what is this referring to? Well, it's referring to the previous verse, which is why the previous verse from the previous chapter is printed on there. It's referring to God's mercy to Nineveh. Jonah is displeased and he's angry at the fact that God has shown mercy to the Ninevites. Now, just to kind of understand how shocking (laughs) of a comment this is, um, you have to remember, Jonah's a prophet. You know, he's basically a full-time preacher. That's his job. And in chapter 3, what we saw last week is that Jonah preaches to an incredibly hostile audience. Uh, you know, this is a sermon about the God of Israel to Israel's enemies. And they all repent. <laughs> they all fall on their knees, they put on sackcloth, and they repent. You know, this is, this, this is just off the charts, unbelievable success. Um, you know, this is probably the greatest success of Jonah's entire you know, preaching career. But in chapter 4, you find out that Jonah's response is to be absolutely, completely, totally unhinged angry. (laughs) Now, how can this be? You know, how can he have the greatest success of his whole career and be angry about it? Well, what does the text say? Look at the very next verse. In the very next verse, Jonah finally tells you what's really been going on in his heart this entire book. He says, Oh, Lord. This is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. This is what I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threat and judgment. So now, Lord, kill me instead because I would rather die than live. So. <laughs> If you remember back in chapter 1, you know, chapter 1 is like the beginning of the book where it says that Jonah runs away from God. And the the text never really tells you why he runs away from God. And now finally, it all comes out. (laughs) The reason that Jonah wanted to run away from God was because he knew that God is a God of grace. (laughs) He knew that God is a God of grace. And he knew that if he obeyed God... And if he preached in Nineveh, then like his expectation, like so confident that like he would literally find a ship to go in the opposite direction, his his confident expectation was that God was going to be so incredibly gracious that the people of Nineveh would repent and the city would be saved. This is an utterly astonishing statement about God, that Jonah is this confident in God's grace and in God's mercy. And Jonah's reaction As we saw is utter rage he just can't stand the idea of israel's enemies his enemies receiving god's grace so you get a a little glimpse of what's really going on in jonah's heart throughout this whole book it finally gets revealed but then there's a second way that the text reveals what's going on in jonah's heart and it has to do with the episode with the plant why is there a plant you know why does god all of a sudden you know, d- decide to devote his attention to botany? You know, what's, what's really going on? <laughs> well, so in verse 5, what does Jonah do? He goes outside the city, and he just kind of sits there. He actually builds himself a little shelter. It's like he kind of sets up his little tent, you know. He's, he's in for, he's, in, he's, he's there to stay for a while. And he, it says that he goes outside of the city because he wants to see what will happen to the city. You know, maybe he hopes that God will change his mind and, and he'll destroy the city after all. We don't know. But the problem is, it's the Middle East, it's really, really hot, and so Jonah is sitting outside in the sun, and so what does God do? Well, he causes a little plant to grow up around Jonah, and it gives Jonah some nice, you know, little shade for his head. And Jonah, it says, was very delighted about this little plant. Uh, And by the way, notice the wording. (laughs) Remember, I said this is a a chapter full of all kinds of ironic contrasts. Well, notice that uh, how verse 1 and verse 6 go together. Literally, what verse 1 says is about God's grace to Nineveh. What it literally means is it was evil to Jonah with great evil. But then Jonah's response to the plant is it says Jonah rejoiced with great joy. <laughs> so God actually kind of helps Jonah realize uh, just exactly how ridiculous he's being. Because if you look at his, the very last thing that God says, God gets the last word in this book. And look what he says in verse 10. In verse 10, he points out to Jonah just what a hypocrite he's being. He basically says, um, you know, look, Jonah, <laughs> you're angry about my grace to the Ninevites, but you're delighted about my grace to you. <laughs> you care more about plants than you care about people. You care more about your momentary comfort than than their eternal souls. So do you see what's going on? Like Jonah loves things more than he even loves people. It's been said that if you love God, you'll love people and you'll use things. But if you don't love God, you'll love things and use people. But by contrast, notice what God's heart is really like in this chapter. What probably has been obvious uh, so far is that God loves the Ninevites. He loves the Ninevites even though they're his enemies. So verse 11, God says, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, this enormous city? There are more than 120,000 people in it who do not know right from wrong, as well as many animals. I mean, look at the way that God even puts that. You know, it says literally, they don't even know their right hand from their left. I mean, what a gracious way for God to talk about a civilization that we know from history was so violent and so bloody and so brutal and so sinful and so depraved. And God says, they don't even know their right hand from their left. I mean, look at how merciful that is. It reminds me of when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples fall asleep on him, right when Jesus says, "Like, hey, you know, this is my hour of greatest need. Can you please just stay awake for one hour and pray for me, pray with me? I need your help." They fall asleep, and Jesus comes back to them and he says, "Well, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Like, you know, like I can tell that you really you you were were trying." (laughs) Look how merciful God is in this story. And in fact, um, th- this chapter is just so funny. If you if you if you don't read this chapter and find yourself laughing a little bit, go back and read it again. Notice that the very last thing <laughs> that this book ends with is a bunch of cows. Literally, what the, the, the very last line in the text is 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 the word in Hebrew that can mean cows. It can mean cattle, and it's saying like there are 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left, and a bunch of cows. Like God even cares about the cows. <laughs> yeah. Anyone here care about cows? Anyone here grow up on a farm? Okay, well, not surprising. Anyway, cows are great. God loves cows. Look at the heart of God in the way that he loves the Ninevites. And look at the heart of God in the way that he even loves Jonah. Jonah. You know, what's so amazing about this is that Jonah is supposed to be God's friend. In fact, he's kind of supposed to be, in a sense, God's employee. I mean, like God had commissioned Jonah to do something that he'd asked him to do. And so Jonah's meant to be God's friend. And in this chapter, he actually makes himself God's enemy. I mean, he says that he he looks at the mercy of God and he calls it evil. So Jonah is actually at enmity with God. And yet God shows Jonah mercy in this story. And in fact, if you want to see the greatest demonstration of God's heart, all you have to do is look beyond this story to see the real story that it points to. Because there was another one who went outside of the city and and wept over the city that had rejected him. And that was Jesus. You might remember that as he's marching into the city of Jerusalem to be rejected by his own people, to be murdered and killed by the very people that he came to lay down his life for, instead of doing what Jonah did and looking down on them with judgment, he looks down on them with tears in his eyes and he said, if only you knew that your salvation was at hand, but you've missed it. He wept. He said, how often I have longed to gather you under my, uh, uh, you know, to myself as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings, but you were not willing. The heart of God in Jesus in the way that Jesus laid down his life for us, for our sins when we rejected him, is really ultimately what this book is pointing to. So just notice, first of all, there's a contrast here between God's heart, there's a contrast here with Jonah's heart. But then, I want to point out just one more contrast and just use that to flag up a couple more things for you to notice tonight in this passage. Notice the contrast between Jonah's flight and God's pursuit. So one question we can kind of ask is, okay, well, so we're saying that, you know, God loves Jonah. Well, how does he love Jonah? How does he love Jonah? Uh, Notice a couple of things um, that you see once now you've got all these chapters put together. Uh, Notice that in, in chapter one, Jonah runs away from God through his disobedience. So chapters one and two, you know, he, he flees from God, gets stuck in the fish. God says go, Jonah says no. So he runs away through disobedience in the first two chapters. But then in the last two chapters, Jonah runs away from God again. But this time through obedience. So God says go, and he goes. And yet now we find out that his obedience was a sham. You know, God wanted to save the Ninevites. Jonah wanted to condemn the Ninevites. His reason for going to Nineveh and God's reason for him going to Nineveh were totally at loggerheads. And in fact, by the way, just, you know, it's kind of interesting. Now that you see Jonah's real heart in chapter 4, let's just do a little retrospective on his little sermon in chapter 3 to the Ninevites we looked at last time. So chapter 3, verse 4, you know, Jonah says, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. You might remember last week, it was pointed out that, you know, it's kind of a bad sermon because, like, he doesn't talk about repentance. He doesn't talk about, like, how you get saved. You know, there's no salvation message. It's only judgment. You know, has it ever occurred to you that perhaps Jonah actually wanted it that way? That he really didn't want the Ninevites to repent and for God to show mercy to them. And so all he preaches is God's judgment. Kind of interesting. Interesting. So at the beginning of the book, Jonah runs away through disobedience. At the end of the book, he runs away through obedience. What that tells us is that there are actually two ways that you can run away from God. Two different ways that you can be lost. One is by rebelling against all the rules. But the other is actually by keeping all the rules, but for the wrong reasons. Kind of interesting. You know, I was reading a little book by Tim Keller on Jonah, and he points out that, uh, this story of Jonah is actually very, very similar to the parable of the two lost sons that Jesus tells. In chapters one through two, Jonah kind of is like the younger brother who disobeys his father, if you remember that story. And then in the last two chapters, he's more like the elder brother, who's like self-righteous and stuck up, and and thinks that he's obeying God, but actually is just doing it because you know, he's trying to get leverage on God. And he basically tells his father, you know, I've slaved for you all this time. And he uses his obedience to try to get leverage over God so that God owes him. God has to save him. God has to give him what he wants. So there's two different ways that the book of Jonah is showing us that you can run away from God. You can run away from God through disobedience, which is kind of the traditional way. Or you actually can run away from God through obedience from a wrong heart. Now, what does that look like? There there are a couple of things here that the text actually shows us about what it looks like to run away from God uh, through obedience. And there are two things I want to flag up here. Uh, The first one is that it looks like idolatry. It looks like idolatry. Idolatry, another way that you could, you know, that's sort of a biblical word. But what that really means is it means misordering your loves. You know, there's all kinds of great things that are worthy of love. You know, like you might love hamburgers. Uh, You might love um, your boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, those are all things that are worthy of love. Um, You know, I'm not going to judge anyone if you don't like hamburgers here tonight. But, you know, you should. You should. (laughs) Anyway, how wrong would it be if you actually got the order wrong? Like, what if you loved your hamburger more than you loved your own parents? You know, that would be a case of misordered loves. Now throw God into the mix. Imagine, you know, God is the the God of ultimate beauty, ultimate goodness, ultimate grace, ultimate mercy. And so it's impossible for there to be anything that is more, like, worthy of our love than him. And so idolatry is to take something that's good and to elevate it to the place that only God deserves. And so in Jonah's Jonah's case... Jonah's idolatry is that he loved his nation more than he loved his God. You know, it's not. I'm not saying that patriotism is wrong. In fact, patriotism is good. But in Jonah's case, he loved his country so much that it drove him to hate the Ninevites. And it drove him to be completely alienated from the heart of God. So, one thing... Uh, that you see in Jonah's heart, the sort of elder brother heart, is idolatry. He's overloving the wrong things. But then, you know, here's a question. What happens? Well, okay, what happens? What happens if the thing that you're loving too much is actually yourself? The answer to that question is actually the second symptom of running away from God in the way that Jonah is here. It's self-righteousness. Idolatry and self-righteousness. Self-righteousness leads you to excuse yourself and condemn others. To excuse yourself and condemn others. Or, if you want another name for that, it's called pride. (laughs) Pride. And you see Jonah doing this here. He says, Nineveh is the enemy. (laughs) You guys, you Ninevites, you guys are the bad people. I'm the good people. Because I'm part of God's country, God's nation. But what Jonah doesn't realize is that while he's condemning the Ninevites, he's excusing himself. He doesn't even realize that he has become God's enemy in this chapter. And this is why self-righteousness is so devastating to you and to everyone around you. It's invisible. You may not even realize that it's there. And it will just do total damage to, all, to you and to all the relationships in your life. You know, there's an old quote by the famous poet T.S. Eliot about self-righteousness. This is so good. Listen to this. He says, "...half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves." I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but maybe you can just like, you know, raise your hand in your heart if you have ever lived in the endless struggle to think well of yourself. And just think about what that does to your relationships. Think of the way that if you're always trying to think well of yourself, you're constantly going to be looking for ways to put other people down so that you can feel like you're better. Self righteousness is, is it's one of the most toxic things that can seep into your life. Now, let me just pull on this a little bit more. What does that look like, let's say, in the life of a Christian? Uh, you know, Christians aren't immune to this. And as I was thinking about this today, you know, the kind of image that came into my mind, this is a very Pacific Northwest image. It's kind of like, you know what it's like? It's like when you're on the beach and you, like, pick up a rock and you, see, like, a whole bunch of crabs are under there, you know, and they kind of scurry away. And, they, you know, whenever they, they can, they try to find another rock that they can hide under. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- 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 they do that because they're, they're, they're sneaky, they're hiding, and self-righteousness is kind of like that. They're, they're, self-righteousness loves to hide. Uh, and let me just give you three different rocks that uh, self-righteousness can hide under, even if you're a Christian. Uh, number one, tribes. Number two, bunkers. And number three... So, what do I mean? Well, number one, tribes. And what I mean by tribes are just, you know, kind of the in group that you're a part of. Maybe that's like your special church or your church denomination or, you know, the little theological grouping that you're a part of. Now, those things aren't bad, but it can lead to groupthink. You can think, well, you know, isn't it great that out of all of the different, you know, like churches and denominations in the world that I stumbled across, the right one. <laughs> this kind of happens with politics too. You, know, you ever heard of confirmation bias? You know what happens? Like all the people who lean Democrat watch CNN and they talk all the bad things about the right and then all the people who lean Republican watch Fox News and they talk about all the bad things about the left and you just get in these little media bubbles where you know, oh my gosh, like all those crazy people on the other side, like have you heard what they're talking about? Have you heard what they think? They're just, you know, I just can't believe these people. They're horrible, they're evil, they're insane. So beware tribalism. Beware tribalism. And then number two, bunkers. You know, sometimes a tribe can become so toxic that it becomes a bunker where you feel like you have to literally wall yourself off from anyone who's not one of us. (laughs) Because maybe it's fear. You know, fear of kind of the the world out there, the people out there. Maybe it's, uh, you know, because maybe you've started to demonize the other side. You know, I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't live in a bunker, that he was in the world, but not of the world. And he actually went outside the bunker to where all the lost and hurting people were. And he reached out to them. And he put himself in harm's way, you know, out on the crossfire outside the bunker, so that he could seek and save the lost. And we're called to do the same thing. And then last of all, piousness. Piousness. Now, what is piousness? Piousness is it's just a word that means like being really, really religious. And even more, thinking that you're really, really religious. That you're kind of the goody-two-shoes who always does the right thing, That is, you know, the thing that God really wants. Now I'm not saying you, know, you should do the thing that God really wants, that's, that's not bad. But just notice how this is even true in Jonah's case. Notice in verse 2 that Jonah actually is quoting scripture here. He says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That actually is a quote. He's quoting from Exodus 34, which is the famous place where God describes his character. But Jonah is quoting scripture in the very same breath that he's blaspheming God. And he's using that scripture to turn the tables on God and point the finger at God and saying, God, your mercy, is, your mercy stinks. I hate your mercy. <laughs> so do you notice that you can know God's word? you can utterly miss God's heart you can know God's word and utterly miss God's heart and sometimes maybe you've run into people like that who like know a lot of scripture but man it sure doesn't seem like they smell a whole lot like Jesus Um, I'm sure that you know maybe some of you have thought that about me and I just want to repent and apologize for that beware of piousness beware of thinking I've got all the religious clothing on but do you really have God's heart in contrast to self-righteousness, a Christian is someone who has radically encountered God's mercy. They know, that they, are, that they, they know that they are a sinner, that they don't deserve God's mercy, and yet God has been merciful to them anyway. And as a result, they then are merciful to others. The more you know God, the more merciful you will be to others. One of the proofs that you've really encountered God is that you are a merciful person. So, that's kind of Jonah's strategy for how he tries to run away from the Lord. The question now is, uh, that's Jonah's flight. What's God's pursuit? You know, how is God going to deal with his renegade prophet, renegade take two (laughs) yet again? well what does he do notice in the text that he pursues and he woos he pursues and he woos let's just notice three ways that god does this the first way is through kindness kindness god doesn't spite him he doesn't zap him he doesn't berate him he shades his head (laughs) he gives him a little plant he 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 blesses Jonah. He shows kindness to Jonah. It says in Romans chapter two, verse four, God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness leads us to repentance. So some of you might know that over the weekend uh, there was this, the major Supreme Court decision about Roe versus Wade. Um, I know, by the way, I'm kind of potentially stepping on some sensitive territory, but, but I'm not you know I'm not trying to lose you here. Um, All I want to point out is that for Christians, you know, Christians uh, see Scripture as teaching that God uh, cares about the least of these. Uh, Scripture says that everyone's made in the image of God. And so even though, you know, there's a whole lot of really messy, complex things that this decision means for what it looks like to care for all people from womb to tomb and to care especially for women who maybe have experienced unwanted pregnancies, I'm not saying it's simple, but what I am saying is that uh, because of the way that God values the least of these, uh, there's very good reason for Christians to celebrate that ruling. But one of the things that's been really interesting to me as I've watched some Christians celebrate that ruling is that the other half of the country is terrified of the ruling, you know, disturbed by the ruling, thinks that this is the absolutely wrong decision. Now, now, isn't it interesting that, okay, the law of the land has been changed, but people's hearts are still what they were. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that laws can't change people's hearts? You know, if you just, like, get a bunch of rules put on your back, do you think you're going to, like, all of a sudden be like, oh, I'm so excited to follow all these rules. You know, that's what I want. Just give me more rules. I love rules. <laughs> no, you're going to be like, like this is enough with the rules. I can't, you know, I can't even obey just one of them. <laughs> rules can never change a person's heart. But you know what does? God's kindness. God's kindness leads to repentance. When God pursues and when God woos. So number one is kindness. Number two is actually judgment. God pursues Jonah through judgment. A little later, uh, we're going to sing a song that we've never sung at Thrive before, but the reason I I picked it out is that it's actually a song that alludes to this chapter. Um, In the old King James Version, instead of calling it a plant, um, it calls it a gourd. (laughs) I'm not sure why that is, but it calls it a gourd. And there's, a, there's an old song by a guy named John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, and it's called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And this is a great little, little song um, that, that it's really about like, you know, John Newton saying to God, like, God, I want to grow spiritually, would you help me do that? And I'm going to read you the, the words of this, of this song, and I want you to listen to how God uh, helps John Newton grow spiritually, okay? So here, here it is. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face? Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power... Subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand. He seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I oft employ, from self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. What's Newton saying? He asked the Lord to grow spiritually, and God answered his prayer by letting him experience the horrors of the depths of his own sin and destroying his dreams and replacing them with hardship. (laughs) How do you like that? (laughs) What this points to is that it usually takes a long time and a lot of pain to really come to grips with the grace of God. You're never going to fully know the depths of God's love for you unless you say yes to him, taking you through things that are hard. And why is that? Well, the reason is that we're pretty distractible people. We're so di- distracted and diverted by all of the pleasures and all the other things in life that like, we think we don't need God. And we think that growing looks like becoming more independent. From God, Actually, growing looks like becoming more and more dependent on God. And sometimes the only way that God can get through our thick skulls is to allow us to go through things that are hard. So number one, kindness. Number two, judgment. And then last of all, patience. Patience. Uh, One of the things that you see with Jonah is that even after God spares him through the fish, he's still a long way from grasping the mercy of God. And what's so cool about this book is that God is patient with Jonah. He pursues Jonah through patience. And you even kind of see that here with the cliffhanger ending. It's as if God is asking Jonah, Jonah, do you get it yet? (laughs) You know, it's like he's even asking the reader, like, hey, reader, do you get it yet? Like, I'm leaving you with this last question. You know, does it it click? Has the penny dropped? Does it make sense? Um, there's There's a great book. Some of you guys may have read it. It's called Gentle and Lowly just speaks to how it takes a long time very often um, and a lot of patience to really allow the grace of God to sink deep into your soul. Uh, Here's this quote. It says, The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. I don't know what you think about all that, but I actually think it's kind of cool. Um, You know, sometimes you think, man, like my faith um, is really characterized by the mountaintop moments. You know, like when I went to camp and I had this really meaningful experience with Jesus, or I went to a mission trip and had this really amazing mountaintop experience with Jesus. God loves the journey. And do you know that he actually probably has more to do in you in times that feel like they're completely flat, completely dry, you know, completely arid than at your you know, most exultant mountaintop experience you've ever had. Some of you here don't actually know this. You've walked through this. And you've got a testimony that the world needs to hear. So, uh, I just want to leave you um, with just a, you know, just a question or two as we go into small groups tonight. You know, where does this apply to us well number one you know do you do you know the pursuit of god are you willing to let him pursue you in this way to, to kind of have a yes in your spirit to god maybe inviting you into a season that maybe is not your favorite and are you actually willing for god to woo you and pursue you um i, I came across an interesting little little was like a blog post or something and i just thought you know this is like one of the coolest little testimonies I think I've ever heard of what it looks like to, to kind of have God kind of chasing you with his love into his kingdom. Let me just, I'm going to read you what this guy says. I don't even know who this guy is, just some random Christian. And this is sort of his testimony. Uh, just, I want to just, yeah, I'll just read this here. Uh, he said, when I was young, I had no idea that there was such a terrifying concept as an all-loving, ever-pervasive God Who sought not intellectual precision, or ritualistic elegance, or even sheer human kindness, but who sought the elusive self-honesty that hides within our heart of hearts. A God who would hunt down the slickest rebel, but when the game was lost for the sinner, still wait for surrender. I had no notion that such a thing existed not in fiction, in fantasy, in myth, or in religion, and certainly not waiting in the little white church down the road, or dwelling evermore in the works of human hands or the breathtaking landscapes of my material worlds. As a young adult, the deep reality of God came to me as a great shock. One moment I was walking in my way, somewhat listless, I suppose. Suddenly, without warning, I was swept up into another way, the change was immediate and absolute. Before I knew there was a trap, I was caught. <laughs> Is that the way that you know God? Have you ever felt him pursuing you like that? You don't have to be a non-Christian to feel that. You can feel that even as a believer. Do you know God's pursuit? And then last of all, do you know God's heart? You'll notice there are a couple of questions tonight. They just ask, you know, where do you see the church failing to live out God's heart in our society? And then on top of that, where do you see yourself personally failing to live out God's heart toward the people around you? This chapter, this whole book, raises the question, do you really know God as well as you think you do? Do you really know God's heart? Because the acid test for that is how you treat other people. Have you grasped the radical, astonishing grace of God toward you and everyone around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. Um, And just thank you for the way that it so lovingly, uh, so shrewdly, uh, just puts your heart and your grace and your mercy on display. Would you help us know that? In Jesus' name, amen.